This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media. Hold on tight. Does this passage pump you up, Jeff? You bet your life it does. Let me tell you why. Quickly, Revelation 20 reminds me that one day justice is going to roll like a river. One day the trumpet's going to blow and all these authorities and all these governments who blaspheme the throne of God and the people of God will be judged. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Welcome back to Today with Jeff Fines. My name's Aaron. Pastor Jeff is in his new series, looking at the Bible passages that pump him up and is keen for them to have a great impact in our lives as well. So far, we're reviewing Matthew chapter 15 and the faith of the Canaanite woman. And last time, we started looking at Revelation chapter 20. Pastor Jeff admits it's a difficult book to understand, but is helping us to decode this section so we can find its meaning and apply it to our lives today. Here he is with the rest of this message, and if you want, you can find the whole series and many more wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines. So this is where all the discussion comes in about the book of Revelation, just quickly. There's a time period here that we're trying to figure out. There's so much that happens here. So you got mid-trib, post-trib, pre... Look, I always like to say, I'm a pan-millennial, so I think it'll all pan out in the end. I know it's old, but that's, it's hard to understand, very difficult to get the timing. But let's at least talk about what we do agree, that we're in dif- difficult, we're in terrible times, and it's going at a pace and at a speed that, quite frankly, even as a pastor, I didn't anticipate. And here's the rub. Those who are never born again are dead men and women walking and their eyes have not been opened and they are not spiritually woke. They are zombie-like. I'm not saying that they get up every morning and say, today I'm going to live for the devil. Like you and I say, today I'm going to live for Jesus. But what Jesus tried to teach us is, man, if you're not living for Christ, there's no middle ground. You can't help it. You're following the ways of the world. You get sucked into it. You start to believe everything it tells you. Have you not seen things lately that you think, in America, can you, really a drag queen comes into a library and reads story to children? Uh, Really? But you tell a a Christian author who wants to read a a storybook about wholesome morality that he can't come in? Don't you look at that thing, is this America? But at the same time, even though we're devastated and disappointed, I'm not sure we should be surprised. I remember the first time a friend of mine talked me into going to a hero parade. A hero parade is a gay parade in New Zealand. And he said, dude, you got to go because you can't talk about it unless you go. I couldn't stay. Now, I don't know what they're like today, so I make sure I'm not saying that. But back then, I went and I stood on a place called K Road and the debauchery, the, the, the evil that was there, and people were celebrating it as if it was a good thing. And at that time, I said, man, I'm glad I'm American. I'm glad I'm this would never happen in America. What's being celebrated? Do you see what culture's done to us? And first, let me read a quote. These days, it's not just that the line between right and wrong has been made unclear. Today, Christians are being asked by the culture to erase the lines and move the fences. And if that were not bad enough, 
We are being asked to join the celebration cry by those who have thrown off the restraints religion had imposed upon them. It is not just that we are being asked to accept, but now it is demanded that we celebrate. They got us. At first they said, hey, just tolerate. That was the first thing, just tolerate. Okay. So what was done in private in the past because of the shame in the public arena now came out in the public arena and we're told, hey, don't say anything. It's your right to live your life the way you want. Just tolerate. So we did. And then we're told, no, you got to do more than tolerate it. You got to accept it and say that it's moral. And then after we got that, now they tell us we got to actually celebrate it and be happy that it's happening. Dr. Tim Keller, you've heard me quote him numerous times, a great apologist, a great man of God. I am incredibly indebted to his teaching and his books. One of the last messages he preached, I listened to, it's on YouTube. And somebody asked him the question, how are we going to reach this next generation? And do you know what he said? I couldn't believe it. He said, I don't know. And then he said, the demon is in too deep. The demon is in too deep. You can't have conversations with anybody anymore. Once they realize you're on the opposite side, they cancel you. People get angry and shout at you rather than having logical conversations. I'm finding it more and more difficult to engage people in conversation now, especially when they find out I'm a pastor. That's it. We're not willing to converse anymore. Now, I believe if Tim Keller would have continued to talk about this, as he told the young pastors in the crowd, you got to find the way, and we will, because the gates of Hades will never prevail against the church. Never. Verse six, blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God. So we're told we're going to come alive. We're told that we're going to reign. And we're told that during this time, we're priests. We're all preachers. We're all pastors, all of us, the priesthood of all believers, which means you and I continue to live lives of distinction. Keep on loving and calling those who are far from God, near to God. And keep on calling sin what it is while confessing your own, because we all got it, right? Confess it, deal with it, lest you get sucked into the vortex and suddenly you start thinking the thoughts after having been conformed to the ways of a world that is held under the sway of the evil one. And then verse seven and eight, when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and gather them for battle. Now, by the time John writes this section of Revelation, Gog and Magog had become terms used by rabbis to communicate the ultimate opposition to God, okay? So we're told that somewhere in the end, that in this time period, wherever it is near the end, Satan is going to be released and he's going to go gather the armies of Satan and they're going to fight against the armies of God. And we're told that Satan will be released for this short time and he will gather all his constituents and that there's going to be this great battle. In Revelation 16, we're told that they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now, in this pastor's humble opinion... Armageddon is not China or Russia, which would have meant nothing to John's readers. It comes from two Hebrew words, the Hebrew word har, which is the word for mountain, and Megiddo, which is where you fought all the Old Testament battles. You can still go to Israel today and see this valley. 
So the writer, having written apocalyptic literature to communicate what's going to happen through the use of signs and symbols, so you look at the you look at the sign and symbol rather than the literal first. He simply tried to say, as they tried to reach God in the Tower of Babel, there is there is man trying to reach up and finally dethrone God, which has been Satan's object from day one. And one day, Armageddon is going to happen, and the evil servants of the evil one and the demonic forces against the forces in the heavenly places are going to come together and there's going to be this great battle and the wrath of God comes, judgment day, Michael and the archangel lead the armies of heaven against Satan and his armies and they are ultimately defeated. The same battle has been revealed at the end of the previous vision in Revelation 19, 19. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and the armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the white horse. Well, we know the rider on the white horse is Jesus because in Revelation 19, 13, we're told the rider on the white horse has a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. So the rider on the white horse is Jesus. Now what man is going to fight against him? Jesus and the armies of heaven, he's going to lead them with Michael and Gabriel, and they're going to fight against the heavenly forces of evil, and we win in the end. Which is why you can walk around like Brooks Kepka with your head held high, knowing that you're going to win. In verse 8b and 9 in Revelation 20, in number they are like sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They were tormented day and night forever and ever. That's how it ends. Now, hold on tight. Does this passage pump you up, Jeff? You bet your life it does. Let me tell you why. Quickly, Revelation 20 reminds me that one day justice is going to roll like a river. Those who orchestrated the genocides of the Jews, the Armenians, and Rwandans, they're going to be held accountable. Every leader or tyrant who watched his people starve while he padded his own wealth will stand before God and give an account. Every politician who, rather than serve his or her own people, used his or her position to steal and plunder will be exposed and judged accordingly. The drug cartels who convince young people that drugs are the answer to all their problems and then watch as they destroy themselves will answer to the God of all creation. And parents who secretly, inside the four walls of their homes, brutalize their children day after day, month after month, year after year, will cower in front of their heavenly father who will hold them accountable for all they've destroyed. One day the trumpet's going to blow and all these authorities and all these governments who blasphemed the throne of God and the people of God will be judged. And Jesus will gather his army and Satan will gather his armies and there's going to be war and all who were sucked into the vortex of this world system will be defeated and the people of God will enter into the new heaven and the new earth. Revelation 20 is the story that one day judgment is going to roll like a river. Here's the second thing though. Revelation 20 reminds me that the spiritually dead can come alive. Woo! We can live again right now. Last night, a Friday night at 4.30 out at Clatch in Rancho, I got together with about 15 men. Felt good. Felt like the old days. And I listened to their heart. There are men in this congregation who have a holy discontent they cannot tolerate what this culture is doing to our young men. 
almost making them feeling guilty for their testosterone, almost making them feel guilty for being a man, wanting to blow up something. No, not really. We're wired differently. I'll get to you girls later. Don't worry. I'm simply saying there's a group of men in this church that cannot live that way and want to take these young men and disciple them and, and mentor them. And God bless them for doing that and telling them there's a plan that God has for their lives. But do you know why? As I stood there and I sat there and listened to them, I realized they are like this because they are woke. Spiritually, they have... What's the word? Woken. They're awake. They've been born again. They're living. And when you're living, you see the dead. And they want to do something about it. This is what happens when you come alive again. I was just in Africa, just quickly. We're, we're okay. I was in Africa just a few months ago. And we went to this place, which is one of my favorite places in the world. It's called the Safari Lodge. And from the Safari Lodge, you look out over this watering hole. And in the evening, there's a light, spotlight, and the animals come. Now they've developed this place called the HUD. We didn't know if we'd see any animals. It was amazing. I don't know if I've ever seen, I think we counted 35 elephants. And what was amazing to me is this, and you see these on YouTube. Isn't it amazing how animals come to the waterhole? And when they come to the waterhole, sometimes a croc gets them, and yet they still keep coming, right? Buffalo come to the waterhole, and sometimes a croc gets them, but they keep coming. Why? Because you can't live without water. You've got to take the risk. When you're spiritually awake, you realize that the vortex of this culture is so powerful that if you're not consistently getting spiritual water, food, you'll get sucked in. You cannot live without spiritual food. The vortex is too strong. Culture's too strong. And so when you come alive, you realize to stay alive, you keep drinking from the well. There's discipleship in your life. You're in a group or a community of people, men and women who are holding you accountable. You're learning the word and you're learning to apply the word into the everyday events. So it reminds me, Revelation 20, we're awake. Although some of you, I wonder sometimes, I really do. But okay, maybe you're just not demonstrative, but you're awake. And then third and finally, Revelation 20 is the story that neither life nor death shall defeat us. Neither life nor death shall defeat us. Now, the first thing that tells me is that we are supposed to be great risk takers. Remember the story I told you years ago, and I'm reminded because I just got back from Tennessee. I was reminded of the story that I told you years ago. We used to play cork ball. We're Tennesseans. We don't have a lot of money. So I would, I'm sorry, steal the broomsticks out of the broom closet. And we'd get corks. And there's a cool game called cork ball. And you can take a cork and you can flip it and it'll move and curve. And then... The way you play it is you get one strike. If you swing at the ball and miss and the catcher catches it, you're out. That's it. And when you hit it, which it will take off if you hit it solidly, you don't run the bases. Depending on how far it goes, you get points. We look forward to this at recess every day, man. That's what we live. We didn't go to school to learn. We went to school for cork ball. And then Dr. Plass, the principal, took away our broomsticks. All of them. Now, they really weren't ours. They were the janitors. But we felt like we owned them. So we all got together one day, and I can't remember who it was, but somebody said, what are we going to do? And the next words came, somebody ought to, and as soon as somebody says that, what comes next? I dare you. I double dog dare you. 
So I came up with a plan. Yes, this is your future preacher. I came up with a plan. I said, hey, Mark, hit me in the nose. My nose will start bleeding. They'll take me to the principal's office. When they go out to get the first aid, I'll go to the closet. I'll throw all the broom handles out the window. It's a good plan. Good plan. It's a good plan. He hit me in the nose. I was tough. Nose started bleeding. I went in on my nose. They rushed me up to the office. They went out to get him. As soon as they went out to get the first aid, man, I darted in there. and Everything had to come together. You know, it's like Mission Impossible. And I went into the closet and I got the broom handles. There's about six of them and I threw them out. The name Jeff Vines is legend <laughs> on T.A. Duggar Playground, I promise you. You think about it, I got the broom handles back and we played corkball. We made sure they didn't confiscate them again. We had backups. Corkballers on the playground every year choose a moment of silence to give honor to the one who took back the broom handles. We will play corkball at recess. Now, here's the point. Here's the point. I've always been a risk taker. I just can't stand to maintain anything. But when you're a Christ follower and you're alive, we should be the greatest risk takers ever because we know that God is with us. And risk, listen, often becomes the process of elimination through which you discover the will of God. If Christianity is anything, it's a call to not play it safe. How many men do I meet that have been in a job for the last 20 years that sucked the life right out of them, but they won't move? Their boss is miserable. There's no satisfaction in what they're doing. There's no joy in their productivity. And my advice has always been get out. And they'll say, but I have to make a living. No, you don't. What you have to make is a life. But you've got to risk. If God put that in you, he's got something for you. You've got to trust him, man. We're supposed to walk around willing to risk. When we hear the voice of God, we get it done. We assume that he's with us. But we also live knowing that the end of the story is a good one. Think about it. We know God is with us. We know God has a plan for all of us, men, women, children, everybody. So we're listening to his voice. If we have a holy discontent, we're responding knowing that he's going to energize us. Whatever God calls us to do, he assumes the responsibility to equip us to do it. He'll provide. I would have never gone to Africa had I not believed God would provide. I would have never gone to New Zealand if I did not believe God would provide. I would have never come here if I did not believe God would not provide or God would provide. We're going to live forever, right? But we're living now. We're alive now, but we're going to live forever. And I have two words for that. Woo-hoo, right? <laughs> Woo-hoo. So we went back to Tennessee. Now, I got to be honest with you because, you know, I, two elders were with me. Can't lie now. We went to C Street. You know, it just didn't look that difficult. The story I told, we were wearing waist and coach was standing at the top of the hill and we'd run up the hill. And I thought, man, you know, that looked a lot steeper when I was a kid. We thought about getting out and running it and recording it and letting you see it this week, but that would be too embarrassing. <laughs> then we went to the house I grew up in and it looked so big when I was little, but now it looks so small. The worst part of it was this though. For the first time in a long time, I, I had dinner with my brothers. Haven't seen them for a long time. It was good but I realized how different we had grown apart. Very different now. I realized we have almost nothing in common anymore. As I left, I was really sad. 
and it, it just didn't feel like home anymore. Maybe it's true, you can't go home. Maybe it's because my mom and my dad are both passed away and they passed away young, so maybe it's because they're not there anymore. Maybe it's because I just didn't know my brothers. I looked at them and I could see them, but I didn't know them. When I first started my journey with Jesus, one of the things that bothered me in the early days of, I think I've shared with you, I, I had to know the Bible was the word of God. So I spent a lot of time in archeology span and any chance I got to go to the library and read how the Bible was shaped and formed, anytime I had any chance to, to try to understand what we have in our hands, one of the things that bothered me is we have nothing left over from Jesus. Now, you can go to leaders who lived far before Jesus did, and we have something, some historical, some clay pot, some insignia, something. But when it comes to Jesus, we don't know the house. We don't have any tools in the carpenter shop. We don't have any clothing he might have worn. Nothing. And then in my research, I remember reading somebody that I really respect brought all this into play. And he said, well, the reason we don't have anything is because God wants to make sure you know his home is not here. He's not from here. If you want relics, you're going to have to go to heaven. That's his home. And I, isn't that true about us though? My home is not Elizabeth in Tennessee. Jesus told me my home, I started from heaven. That's why there's discontent in my life. That's why there's frustration. Because I know I've never really been home. The place that I ultimately belong. If it's true that God knew before the foundations of the world that I was one of his, then I'll never be content or happy until I find my way home. And that's why C.S. Lewis said, speaking about heaven, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life though I never knew it till now. I can't wait to get home, to be with mom and dad and the people that I've loved and lost and play golf on the perfect golf course. <laughs> no, seriously, listen, guys. Revelation 20 pumps me up. Judgment, justice, they're going to roll like a river one day. And you and I are going to live in eternity with God forever. And I just can't wait for that day. Father, thank you for your love for us. Uh, thank you for the power of your word. Anything that I've said today that is not consistent with your word, I pray would fall by the wayside, be trampled on and forgotten. Anything that I've said that is consistent with your word, I pray would go deep into our hearts and sustain us in the days, months, and years to come. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Fines. Next time, we'll bring you a new message from Pastor Jeff. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Fines wherever you listen to podcasts. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Vines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.